Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dylan was, he was a revolutionary, man. The way that, the way that Elvis freed your body, Bob freed your mind. This is Bob Dylan, about man and God and law. What happens when Bob Dylan gets it all wrong? Last time, we talked about Dylan and religious fundamentalism, a religious vibe and sensibility that sometimes lacks the nuance that makes Dylan's commentary on life, the universe, and everything so compelling. And this time, part two, we are joined by music empresario Mark Montgomery French. Mark hails from and works in the Bay Area. He is an award-winning film composer with the group Spiky Blimp, creative director and co-producer of Glide Church's Sunday Online Celebration, host of the podcast, All Your Favorite Music is Probably... Dot, dot, dot. Staff writer at Pop Matters, the manager of the critically acclaimed queer country band Secret Empty Society, and classic power punk band Furies. He's also a music historian who's noted for his talks, All Your Favorite Music Is Probably Black, the series 28 Days, 28 Black Music Documentaries, and Uppity Music, your guide to unsung black departure albums. He was formerly the co-leader of the 90s progressive funk band Endangered Species. You can check out all of these projects and more in the notes from this episode. Mark and I first met to plan a session at the World of Bob Dylan in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and enjoyed the time together so much that we wanted to share some of that conversation here. I learned so much from Mark every time we talk about music, and this conversation is no exception. I'm sure you'll find it deep, challenging, funny, and soaked through with a love of music. I love that this is the second to last episode of this podcast because it suits the way we have been steeped in music for the past three years. 
three years of learning, thinking, talking, and recording, and writing a book about Bob Dylan. Yes, yes, about man and God and law, the spiritual wisdom of Bob Dylan, available wherever fine books are sold. And I'll be moving on to a new project or two after the final episode. More about that later. For now, pull up a comfortable spot for ears, brain, and heart. I'm your host, Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Welcome to episode 13 of season 3. Bob Dylan about man and God and law. When Bob Dylan gets it all wrong. Part 2 with Mark Montgomery French. Mark, it's great to see you again. I have one question to start. We spent, um, I think, three days immersed in the world of Bob Dylan. And I just have to ask you, first and foremost, have you recovered? No, no, I have not. I'm um, I'm uh, still seeing visions of Johanna wherever I go. And um, I, uh, I'm doing my best. My family's worried for me, actually. And have you recovered? Because it was pretty intense. I, I think I've recovered pretty much, but Visions of Johanna in my head is a pretty nice way to summarize, you know, what comes out of like such a uh, a bubble, you know, like a hothouse of Dylanology, everything, everywhere, all at once, as a, yes. as a great poet once said, right? <laughs> so uh, what I thought we could get into first is the second of my critical questions. The first was, you know, have you recovered? The the second and third are are are... Um, also reflecting on our time together at the world of Bob Dylan. And then I want to dig in a little bit with you into the talk that you gave as part of our panel and explore the world of Bob Dylan when Bob Dylan gets it all wrong. <laughs> now we're just going to pause for people to turn down their radial mm-hmm. dial or turn it up depending on their taste. <laughs> so I'm just curious, one thing that you learned that was new to you at the conference and one thing that kind of drove you nuts. Let me see. Um, thing I learned most, and it's funny, it probably wasn't actually during the conference, but when I went to the Bob Dylan Center. And for those who have not been there, uh, over 100,000 pieces of Bob Dylan ephemera are now in a museum for you to appreciate. And they do several things incredibly well. One is, as you walk in and sit down, there's a three-sided room with... Uh, video clips, and there are different ones on different walls to sort of get you to the mindset. It's, it's more like a collage. And it's a beautiful way of trying to explain someone who was so far been hard to explain in totality. But when you go into the main room and you see all of his phases lined up bit by bit with visuals, with clothes he wore to certain festivals, with the multiple handwritings of his, of his lyrics that he kept rewriting and rewriting, all arranged, you start I felt I understand Bob Dylan more than I did before I walked in because mm. the, t- the typical feeling is when so- Bob does something that goes against what your view of Bob is, the first thought is, well, there's Bob doing it again. Right. Who is Bob today? <laughs> What's going on? But when you see it in one linear cycle, you realize he's just a man who likes to create. And you can tell he doesn't really care about any of our reactions. Because while we're reacting, he's going to make something else. It might not even be a song. It could be a movie. It could be some metalwork. It could be a painting. But he's going to keep creating nonstop. And that's the point. It's less about, you know, what about this version of, of the live song where we picked a different band and changed it? 
he's not there. He's so in the moment that I don't even think he understands why we react in the way we do. So, so I, I can't, I was there for about an hour, which is, you know, for me, after an hour in a museum, I cannot pack any more uh, understanding into my head because now I'm just like thinking about what am I seeing and smelling and tasting. But I thought that was brilliant. Uh, so that's the bottom floor. The upstairs is more ephemera, like a button he wore on the Japanese Tour 79, but it was all touch screens. You could, you could click to learn more. So no matter how much you wanted to learn about something, there's a way to get deeper without it feeling like you were lost in a vacuum or, or lost in the overload of Bob's stuff. Yeah, it's true what you said about the the feeling of sort of how the amorphous relationship between all the pieces, it just kind of grounds it in a very, very human, humble kind of way. For me, that the core is experiencing his creativity, not that sort of rock and roll, Hall of Fame, cult of personality, which feels kind of superficial and packaged. Yeah. This felt like you were actually, in a sense, peeking into the artist's studio, which was yes. really interesting and really uh, heartwarming in a certain way, I have to say. It is. I mean, he, he, it worked out for him, but uh, to me, if you create something or you're a creator or you're an artist, you're a painter, you do macrame, it will make you want to do more of it. Right on. Yeah. Right. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. But now there are, because Dylan being Dylan and Dylanologist being Dylanologist, there had to be something that you remember that drove you a little nuts. You know, I I think that, and it's probably due to humans' recency bias, there right. were a lot of people who wanted to talk about his latest book, The Philosophy of Song. I don't think we needed 97 panels on that. It seemed like <laughs> 97, 98. Uh, the book isn't that long. Um, and there is only so much one can say. One or two panels would have been fine, honestly. Uh, and again, it's, it's one of the newest things he did, so let's all talk about it. And because he's commenting on songs, famous and unfamous, there's a. it feels like, the book to me feels like 
uh, a Twitter feed that he decided to package and put together with a binding. (laughs) But with a Twitter feed, people are desirous to comment. So I I see why there were so many. But I would have loved to have heard other people's opinions on anything but that book for the 97th time. Yeah, we had 99 panels and 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 a book ain't one. So yes. yeah, something like that. To <laughs> to to coin another poetic phrase. Yeah. So so we came into this uh gathering trying to think about how Dylan gets it all wrong. It's been interesting to think about that with you uh through the lens of my own work. And I've been focusing on uh Dylan and religion, particularly religious fundamentalism. When the topic came up, what came up for you? What was the the handle or the hook that you brought to the topic that that said, "Hey, here's something I want to dig into," and uh, let's dig into it a little bit. Where where did you map out when Bob Dylan gets it all wrong? So, for those who have not seen me, I'm African American. Just to level set the next couple right. of things I say, <laughs> um, my mother wasn't a teacher, an educator when Dylan was coming up and she brought Dylan into her classroom as literature, which Mm. nowadays I think is pretty common, but been 62, 63 was a little to the left of center. Also mom's from San Francisco. So, you know, that was more acceptable. Right. Right. But that is early though. I mean, the Dylan sort of entering the Academy is I think sort of the first popular entertainer to sort of make it into the literature department that's that's later in the 60s that's that's yeah. like li- later and Greil marcus doesn't write his first piece until until 66 i think um so yeah that's early and i think the, i think the reason why it was early was because you know here comes the civil rights uh civil rights act of 63 is happening at that time there's a lot of so and so mom could relate to to maggie's farm in such a major way mm. and uh i think i even mentioned at the talk that my grandmother, my 100-year-old grandmother, who knew I was coming to Tulsa to speak, made me go on Spotify and mm. find Maggie's Farm so she could cycle it endlessly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just love that song. So That's I had great. that. I had um, times that were changing in my house. I noticed how to Bob Dylan. My parents played it. So I was used to him as a child. And at one point, my parents kind of fell off with music, and that's fine. It, it happens. My mother, uh, like to say, introduced me to Purple Haze by Jimi Hendrix. And then 10 years ago, I found a Kenny G disc in her house and oh boy. screamed. How the uh, mighty have fallen. Oh, my gosh. It, yeah. It's calming, she said. I'm like, really? Because that's the opposite reaction right. for me. Right. Nonetheless. So I, I didn't notice that after civil rights, you very rarely saw Bob Dylan around any black people unless they were super famous or he hired them, usually background singers. Yeah, very few black people in his touring bands. Is one guy, Tony Garnier, who's been his bass player since '89. Sure, but very few other black people. When it's weird as he's playing essentially roots music and there's or blues music and there's people everywhere, and so essentially I realized that he kind of wears his relationship to blackness like a cloak that he could put on when he wants to and feel invincible like Iron Man, and then take off when it's no longer necessary. So you add that to the fact that he's really been keeping um, the minstrel music of Stephen Foster alive for the last mm. 30 years, more than is really necessary. And I started to realize Bob Dylan has a problem with Black people. Mm. 
I don't know if he even he knows that. I don't know if he would phrase it that way, but it seems to be slightly uncomfortable to me. So that was my entree into our presentation. And I love the pin drop silence when I got to the phrase, Bob has issues with black people. Eyes yeah. big, mouths closed, ears cocked. Like, what did he say? Yeah. Uh, that, but that, that was that was a that was a pin drop moment in the in the conversation <laughs> and the pin drops uh and the and the and the needles were needled right people Rip! were needle, needling needling <laughs> the topic for the rest of the time uh, a bunch of people came up to me um and you know in commenting about the about the talk said that um you know they were immediately they didn't say they showed they were immediately put on the defensive so why the pin drop silence uh when you said uh that bob dylan has problems with black people or he's got he's got an issue i want to point it out what what what, why is everybody suddenly uh jaws dropping i I think it has and to be fair everybody i met was sweet wonderful you know we're talking about 50-ish academics all together at what someone called bob dylan sleepaway camp i mean it was all, all all very lovely people that's I think great. it was a combination of things. I think number one, most people in the room thought they were they did everything about Bob Dylan. They they'd attacked him or looked at him or analyzed him from every yeah. perspective. And there's one they'd never thought about. So there's like, huh? There's that. Number two, the quick self-analysis of, well, if I didn't notice it, what's the meat about me? Right. Now now they're 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 exposed in the bright lights of the ballroom. And number three, I find that. People of color talk about race all the time, and people who are not of color tend to not talk about it. So I'm coming at it from a comfortability level with people who probably haven't discussed race this year, perhaps. Maybe in academia it comes up once a month, and maybe it comes about like, hey, there's a, a DEI meeting we should probably attend. But yeah. there's not a real comfortability about it, and so here I come making it a 20 minute segment. <laughs> yeah. But it isn't interesting that like when you look back on the same period when your mom was bringing Dylan songs to the classroom. And one of the things that was always striking to me as someone, you know, I grew up in, in the U S I grew up in, in the spoken and the unspoken tensions. Uh, certainly lived in a privileged environment, like the African-American friends that I had, we all, you know, we went to private school. We kind of lived in a, in a kind of bubble, but the level of sort of Dylan sort of hanging out in Mississippi, looking like he's relaxed, like he's like he's not embarrassed to sing a song like only a pawn in 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 their game, right? To to a crowd of mostly black people in a world that was fiercely, uh, contagiously, violently against their ability to be, you know, basic human beings. And yet Dylan's kind of like. Seems as comfortable there as he seems hanging out outside a City Lights bookshop with Robbie Robertson a couple of years later, or, you know, doing uh, doing uh, stills with Andy Warhol a year after that. So on the one hand, you're saying like there's an issue there. On the other hand, he is sort of held up by I don't know certainly white people like me as being one of the guys who like kind of got it early on in in the consciousness of pop culture and said hey. Um, the past 350 years, we have a problem. I'm going to sing about it. I'm going to point it out. Is there a dichotomy there? How do you probe into that um, paradox? I think a couple of things. One, 
I don't think Dylan's ever had an awkward moment. I mean, we've seen some, but I don't think he's ever felt that way. I think he's, he's felt like, well, this is what I'm doing now, and that's fine, which is great. And I don't think in his heart he would ever consider himself to be racist. And as you know, racism isn't a binary switch. You know, it's not just Klansman abolitionist, right? It's it's a spectrum. Right. <laughs> like most things, it's a spectrum. And I don't know if he necessarily thinks about how things look, the optics. One thing I mentioned was when a white rock band really wants to be authentic, they get some black women to sing behind them. Sure. Right. Sting got a whole band of black people behind him when he first went solo. Paul and Simon went all the way to Africa to get a band together. You know what? To do and the business, I respect right? yeah. his hustle. He yeah. went to the motherland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and of course, some of their best music was developed that way, but always feels like I'm wearing a hat now, right? Why can't you get a bunch of really good white people to sing behind you to go authentic? What right. What is the... So there's a little bit of I want the authenticity of the optics. That's kind of the point. So, you know, as we mentioned, Bob Dylan opened up for Martin Luther King on the March on Washington. Pretty mm. good gig. And was super well accepted because what he had to say and what Black folk had to say at the same time was very similar. And you get people like Sam Cooke, who was on Bob Dylan's side saying, yeah, I know the voice isn't what we're used to, but the message is so strong. I think we can overlook that which is shocking if you think about just black musical culture at that time. You know, if you didn't have a great voice and you didn't dance, you really right. weren't getting much right. play with black right. people. But what he had to say was so strong. But Bob also likes fame. That cuts across his issues with black people or not. Bob Bob likes to be where the famous people are. And that's a way to get over. You know, you you want borrowed interest. If you do a song with Muddy Waters, the Muddy Waters fans are going to go, well, who's this guy? You know, when Harry Belafonte asked him to be on the album, he got, of course he said yes, because Harry Belafonte was a number one music star at that time. Sure. So as you go on, Bob is still around where the fame is. Did he need to license the Times Era Changing to Victoria's Secret? No. And I have no problem with him liking money. But Bob likes to be where the fame is, and the 60s were a great time to be into black culture. So he's going to be into that. And mm -hmm. when that no longer became right. as popular culturally, he jettisoned off to something else. Mm -hmm. Now, there, there, again, there's so much to there's so much to kind of probe on that. Um, can I ask you to think a little bit about Dylan's presentation of himself? in context of these uh, issues, just a, a, even a little further, way past the 60s, past the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, we're flipping through time here. And here we are in Chronicles, Volume 1, his sort of quasi-memoir piece. Dylan writes what is clearly some combination of memoir, hustle, fulfilling a book contract that he hadn't fulfilled for 40 years and finally had to get out of the way, a million reasons and more, right? But there's this moment in the book, and admittedly, it's very convenient for me to come back to it time and time again, and maybe that's what it's there for. But he describes probably a somewhat fictional account of him sitting in the New York Public Library. It's you know 1961, 1962. He's claiming that he used to sit there and read the old newspaper clippings on microfilm from the Civil War period. And he says that he wanted to know what real life was like during the period of civil war. And he describes the civil war as being the time when America uh, was crucified 
and died on the cross, and that that is the crux, literally, right? The nexus through which all of his music comes, through the schism of race, slavery, racism as being the core American, I don't know, it's where every note goes wrong. And so part of what he is trying to do is like make sense through his music of that. So how much of that do you sort of, in reflecting on his music, how much of that feels grounded and sincere? How much of it feels like a hustle? How much of it even you could say goes to the realm of, of right? The, the minstrelly that you, that you mentioned earlier. I'm first thinking that, he co-wrote a song with Gene Simmons of Kiss. And I don't know if that song was actually <laughs> through the crux of the Civil War. So I think he wants to think that. I, I, I think the answer is clearly yes. I mean, you've <laughs> answered your own question here, right? I mean, what, what, this is, this is, this is, this is uh, finally rock and roll history comes to its ultimate conclusion, right? Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Mark. Welcome. And good night. Yeah, everybody. Um, there's definitely songs where I feel that, where I think he's he's tapped into some main vein of humanity. And it's why when we hear some lyrics, even if we don't understand them, even, even if it's like Tangled Up in Blue, in which it's long and sometimes confusing about which woman he's talking about. But he's talking about something that is so visceral that it almost feels like 3D. Like he, like he knows something. He knows something I don't. Mm. He's trying to tell me something about humanity humanity not just my life but all life and all, all american life and what are we what problems are we keep do we keep repeating what issues are always going to be there and then you know he'll do the traveling willberries where i don't think any of those issues are, have come up and not to diss the willberries uh i always thought it was funny that five of the biggest rock stars get together and they go what should we do and they go let's make a skiffle album right but, <laughs> But I think that's maybe like Bob Dylan, nine to five, Monday through Friday. I think that Bob Dylan has weekends and that's when he decides to write songs that don't fulfill that. So I'd say he's mostly correct. And I think mm. he tries to fulfill that. I mean, I think even in Chronicles, he said he got to the seventies and was like, you know, being Bob Dylan's heart, trying to keep up with John Wesley Harding and everything. Uh, people bought my BS and now I have to keep up and I can't. Yeah. It's really yeah. difficult. Right. Uh, so I think that statement is true to a point. I think also when he tries to, and it's happened for a lot of artists, they try to reclaim their youth hmm. and it, it always is poor. For example, Madonna right now has a new song called Vulgar with Sam Smith and it's a or interpretation of anything she is known for from the 80s and 90s. He is literally trying too hard to recapture what was effortless in mm. 87. And no distant Madonna, but perhaps try something else. Yeah. I think with uh, with Dylan, there's sometimes he's trying to go back to the well, and you can't go back to the well because you know you're older now. The well, the well is literally different than it was. Yeah, and, he sings. Uh, you can you you can go back, but you can't go back all the way. Yes, right? yes, exactly. And I think that's when I, when I think about him and his love of of minstrel music. It's not that Stephen Foster's music is melodically bad, but 
it's unnecessary. His his lyrics are unnecessary. His desire to reproduce this uh, lovely, happy slave time society that did not exist and kept doing it way into the 1900s after slavery was over, after Juneteenth was over. And for Bob to defend the usage, I mean, I think about this. I saw a birth of a nation in film class, and they did explain that most film classes show this. Birth of a Nation did invent a language of film. It invented the flashback. It did a lot of fantastic chem work. If you see it now, it's still, you know, it's just from 19, what, 15? Something, still, yeah, 15, yeah, has, 19, has yeah. really great action sequences with horses and moving cameras. But it's essentially a propaganda film about how cool the Klan is when they keep all the Black people down. Right. In fact, it was so successful, it actually reestablished the Klan in America. It was dead. And people went, this seems cool. And I'm not necessarily for censorship, but I like to have things curated in their proper place so you can make a decision about it. And I don't know if I agree with Bob Dylan's curation of Stephen Foster's minstrel songs. And he's been so hard and so, even in the new, once again, talking about his new book, Philosophy mm-hmm. of Martin's Song, mm-hmm. he he comments on uh, a Stephen Foster song, and I'm thinking it's only 65, 66 songs in this book. You couldn't pick any other song to talk about, right? Right. And so, so yeah. So what, what what's the draw then? I mean, it's just like a pervert, perverse kind of perverse version of the opposite side of Stephen Foster. Meaning, I'm going to try to imagine myself in this as this regal looking down from the balcony on slavery, on race, and it's just a tool in my toolkit that I can use to to up the melodrama. I mean, what's the artistry in that? And and more importantly, was Dylan fooling us all along in sort of talking about justice as being like at the core of his work? Um, <laughs> where do you draw the line between justice and hustle? Um, or worse? Yeah. No, that, that that's a good way of phrasing it. My thought, and this may not be true, I'm sure someone can find out, but I don't know if Bob Dylan has any black people in his life who trust him mm. because on the year 29, if I had been his friend, I would have said, Bob, really? <laughs> as someone who's in the public eye, as someone who wants to be seen as a sage, seen as someone who is a brilliant thinker, this doesn't seem way thought out. There's probably a way to do a Stephen Foster song that in which your take on it is clear. I don't think having Ed Harris dress up in blackface and Max Anonymous right. was the way to do it. Well, the band's playing Dixie. There was no, there's no finger quotes, right? We need finger quotes somewhere. Yeah, right. Or else you're just a guy right. who's right. who's bringing up negative negativity uh, and a, a, a passionate hatred and revulsion in people for no particular reason. Because because it has a melody, many songs have a melody. <laughs> it's hard to find like a, a rock and roll creation story that doesn't. I mean, there's certain bands, right? So there's there's Elvis. I heard Elvis the first time. Dylan the first time. Maybe it's Jimi Hendrix for guitarists. Whatever. There are certain sort of bedrock figures for whom they're like they're like the the um, the touchstone for for rock and roll sort of thinks about itself. And with Dylan, you know, 
you read, I don't know, interviews from Rolling Stone collected, you know, anthologies of interviews from the 70s and 80s, everybody mentions Dylan of a certain kind of rocker, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. And so how much of, of that, of Dylan in dealing with race in his association or um, being uh, working in parallel with black musicians, black culture, how much of it is in a sense, um, is it, is it bringing the issues forward in a positive sense? Cause they're being brought for, they're being brought, brought to the fore at all. And how much of it, it actually creates a false friend of like, well, we're playing a, you know, 16 bar blues. So we must be on the right side of history. Right. <laughs> you know, he was a, a attractive white boy at the right time in which attractive white boys would get attention, which has been mm, since the beginning of rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. But he had the little hat. He looked like, like a young Woody Guthrie. And that was also clearly a way of getting attention. And again, no disrespect. Sometimes you need to borrow some energy from someone else to, to step up. It's why the Beatles did a bunch of American R&B covers. You know, if you didn't like Love Me Do, you'll like us doing the the miracles. But uh, here's a situation where Bob did both. So uh, Reuben Hurricane Carter was a boxer who was framed for murder. It was a big uh, black celebrity issue in the mid-70s. And there were a lot of concerts and uh, speeches that were raised in order to fight his case. And Dylan wrote the song Hurricane. And so in the song, he says, and to the black folks, he was just a crazy nigger. No one doubted that he pulled the trigger. Right. So in the same time, he's trying to help the case and promote this man's story. He's also dropping the N-word. And he said it not just that, but as something black folks would say. And there's so many red flags there. It's like, you know, when is it a good time to be one race and talk about what another mm -hmm. race would say? Never. It's never a good time. It wasn't good in 75. It wasn't good in 1875. John Lennon probably in the same year does double jeopardy on that because he says woman is the N-word of the world, right? Yes. So yes. not only not only is he like using the N-word He's taking it in the context. He's a man talking about a woman talking about black people, right? Yes. It's yes. a it's a triple whammy. <laughs> uh, funny enough, not a big radio hit. Uh, and then there was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> would that have gotten beeped? Would that have gotten beeped? Like would AM, FM radio, like would, would, how do you recall, like historically was when Hurricane was on the radio, if it was, or, or Lennon's song, like if they played it through? I think. FM radio at night just played Hurricane. I think no one played John Lennon's song because I don't think they really liked it. Yeah. It's not Imagine. You know, it's uh, not a great song. It's no. a lot, there's a lot of issues in that period. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, so that was, so at the same time, Bob is trying to help out and, and bring attention to the plight. And then he's saying, way too many wrong things just in one couplet. And I think that's sort of where he is. He sort of, there's a line and he sort of goes back and forth. And because he's Bob, no one's really checking him. Oh, I didn't tell you this, by the way. So as I mentioned, when we spoke, right. there was a quote in Rolling Stone in 2012, 
where Bob says, and the beginning part of the quote's lovely. He says, people at each other's throats just because they are of a different color. It's the height of insanity. It will hold any nation back or any neighborhood back. And then he says, if you got a slave master or clan in your blood, blacks can sense that. Okay, we're talking 30 years later. He's still talking about what black yeah. people think. Yeah, our audience and, at the they love that they love that line at the uh, at the conference. Oh yes, they? yes. So I'm in, on. I am waiting for my airplane to taxi on the runway the next day, and one of the attendees who hadn't I don't think he had talked much. We were there, yeah. found me, and he went. Oh, you know what? I went and looked up the rest of that interview. It's so bad. Really? And I said yes, and I said, how come no one checked him? When he said this, I'm like, because he's Bob Dylan. He's been skating on this stuff for decades. So, so it's he was, kind of like a crazy eugenics. I don't know. Like, what? I mean, I don't even know like what category that's in. If you can smell <laughs> on someone their history, right? That makes you an X-Men, I think. If you can okay. actually so, so it's a pre-Marvel sort of breakthrough. Once again, Dylan on the cutting edge. Cutting the, the, edge. The vanguard. The vanguard. Okay, so so he goes off in 2012. He's well past the cute phase, right? Uh, <laughs> yes, he's he's well past the cute phase, and his um his take on this in 2012 is um sounds a little bit more like I don't know 1898 or I don't know 1921, 22. <laughs> what do we do with that? I mean, what do we do with that is a question that we could talk about all of rock and roll vis-a-vis race, right? Uh, So this is something that you've been thinking about for a long time. You have have played music, you have produced music, you have facilitated pretty much every kind of musical expression across genre, right? Punk, rock and roll, country. I mean, you've got, you've got, um, uh, a tremendous uh, 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 knowledge of music, and luckily the bar stayed open late, um, so that we could talk about the the many, many, many different avenues to think about music. Um, talk a little bit more if we zoom out from Dylan and think about rock from a from a broader perspective. Rock vis-a-vis race, rock and black culture, black music, how it presents. Where are we in these sets of questions that are are hard to ask and hard to answer? You know, um, I'm in the middle of teaching a music course on Prince, and it's yeah. called uh, Prince as a Revolution, How the Artists Change Music and Change the Music Business. Mm. And again, another odd dude from Minnesota, what's in the water? Yeah. <laughs> you sure you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. And Prince's trajectory is completely unique. And one thing that's very similar to Bob now, as Prince was maybe at least past the 90s, uh, they live in their own bubble that is so unique and so cut off from regular people that when you interviewers will say, they'll they'll look them in their eyes and the eyes will just, it'll be blank, but they're not reacting to anything you're saying like a regular person would because Bob Dylan's been in Bob Dylan world hard since at least to the point of being famous and having money since like the mid sixties. Right. That's. Oh yeah. And, and, and when Prince was signed, he was 19. He was literally signed as a staff producer as well as artist to Warner brothers. He hasn't had a job 
since he was 19 that wasn't about making Prince songs or really right. selling Prince to the world. And so, you know, smash cut, he's lived for 20 years off and on in Paisley Park, you know, <laughs> where, where he has literally doves in the front hall and everything's purple and smells like lavender and his 24-hour engineers. He doesn't really understand anything that's not that. Go on. So they're living in these elaborately constructed bubbles of their own making their talent leads them to be essentially protected from the world right in a sense right and then they are and with with uh with prince there is one thing he's always aware of he is aware that his gender play and color is not standard and mm -hmm. he's confident enough to just not care you know prince always had uh badass women musicians on stage with him that's right. Uh, you know, and for for forever from 1979 to 2016, and that's not. It, it looked great, but he also had great musicians, and he didn't think gender was an issue that would prevent you from doing something. Now, the one thing I will point out is pretty obvious between Prince and Bob Dylan, that Prince always knew he was black, and he always kept mm. getting reminded. That he was black. When he signed to Warner Brothers, he wanted to be signed to the pop side of the label and not the black side of the label. Because the way it worked is that you had to cross over from the black chart to the pop chart. And there was less money on the black chart and more racism on the black chart. So he, he, he wanted to be signed. I think he was the first black artist to say, I want to be signed to the pop division. Mm. So we figuring, A, I'll probably get some R&B play anyway, which is true. But He'll never be able to break out and be a star he wants to be if he's yeah. already from jump in the cage of you're in the black division. Right. That's the and record, so, Ben. That's you're going to be in that record, Ben, and not that one. Mm -hmm. Right. And so even to this day, um, Amoeba Music is a huge record store in the Bay Area and also in L.A. And mm -hmm. even though Prince has many, many rock songs, Prince the Artist is in the soul section. It goes the opposite way, too. There's this incredible moment in uh, Summer of Soul where Marilyn McCoo is describing how the fifth dimension, which was kind of people were like, they showed up, they're like, where's the band? We thought they were white, you know? And yep. they're, they're, that moment, though, where there's like this sense that, that they can actually do, you know, their music for a black, a primarily black audience. I mean, that's probably a story that's, I mean, that that's, that's, that is the story of a black musician in any category like the question where 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 how do these categories work and right. how do the audiences work so um so so how do you make sense of it as a person of music and a person of color and someone who can see like that the the through the all these different lenses as a as a person who researches music and understands its incredible impact and yet all these ironies that are just right up in our faces i use martinis that's pretty much how I handled many, many. <laughs> so, how many does it take? How many does it take to understand everything? Like, um, do you have to get into double digits, <laughs> or is it enough to just have say three? I think after four or five, you start to feel better about uh, uh, yeah. man's inhumanity. The man, using, right? But then there is a bell curve there, presumably. Like, you get to four or five, and you're like. I think I've understood that humanity <laughs> is good. All is love. You know, you're at the imagine phase yes. of, of, of understanding. And then on the sixth or seven, it's like, first of all, nachos and French fries. <laughs> yes. Yes. True. <laughs> um, the good thing is that 
I see the artificial walls of genre falling down for several reasons. One, looking at my kids, uh, they think a lot of uh, racism and sexism and homophobia isn't only stupid, but look at our generation and go, why did you keep these things alive? So now there's like shame on my uh, Gen X family, which I accept. Uh, number two, there are so many people who are mixed race. So to argue about sure. well, white people like rock and black people like R&B just seems silly when everybody, all their friends are mixed race. Right. Uh, three, it is so much easier to hear other people's music. I remember uh, a group at House of R&B. I didn't really hear any rock and roll until I was in high school. Mm. I'd hear some smooth AM music. I'd hear Three Dog Night. I'd hear some Steely Dan. But I didn't hear Black Sabbath till I was twelve, right? You know, well, all you the were, same year. It's like I got Black Sabbath and Rush and Blue Oyster Cult all in my head almost the same day, and I'm like, "What's what? What? That, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. Okay, <laughs> that's a lot." I will call out literally the heavy metal soundtrack, the soundtrack to the animated film Heavy Metal. Oh, there you go. All those bands and uh, Grand Funk Railroad. And it was a great sampler. I'm like, okay, dude, you haven't heard rock and roll. You haven't heard hard rock. Here's all the bands. Go figure it out. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll check this out. And then and, three years later. <laughs> <laughs> so Prince is coming up in this world, and Prince actually managed to unite culture. You know, he, he, he appealed to men and women. He appealed to white people and non-white people. He, black right. people played him on the radio. And it was really the first one. Hendrix had a mostly white audience. Hendrix had to leave America to go to England to right. get any play, which is a typical way for black musicians to work. This the roots did this in the 90s because they said, hey, we can they were a a a band who did hip hop, which was a unicorn wearing a unicorn. And yeah. so they went to, they went to Europe because they could play festivals and the, the, the breakdown of race wasn't so calcified and and hardened. And that's how it is. Uh, I remember when Living Color got signed to to their label, and it was because they had Mick Jagger running around the industry uh, as the demo producer going, these guys right. are great, and almost nobody wanted to sign them. And eventually they had a, a hit record, and it was just like, so it took all that to even get on the label. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so there's definitely, uh, I think the only other musical act or even entity that did this was Motown in the 60s in which they're like, you know, love songs go everywhere. If we get some R&B and throw on some orchestral strings, I think we can make a music that goes over nations, goes across cultures. And which was explicit, did. right? Smokey right. Robinson des describes sitting with Barry Gordy, and I just heard this on an interview recently where he says, mm -hmm. we want to make music for everybody. And it was right. there was a formula there. It was it was about love. It was about business. It was about audience. It was about everything. And we were just going to make it for everybody. You know, where where do you put Motown in 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 the story of um of of sort of uh, I guess blurring boundaries and um and challenging audiences by doing something so um, inviting that does difference melt away or is it just covered up? It melts away. There's a point in which. So Billboard, which is, as you know, the uh, the record charting uh, periodical of choice for the last 80 years, right. um, and they've always had an issue with what they call uh, the music that Black people listen to. And back in the day, uh, country artists would actually record 
the, the song twice and put them out with different names because True. somebody figured I can just sell this to the white folks, this to the black folks. Yeah. And so yeah. they decided to make a chart for all of those 78s and it was called the race records chart. There you go. It eventually moved into other great titles like Hot Black Singles. That was not a really oh, well thought gosh. out. That was the 80s. That was uh, the 80s. You had George Michael on the top of the Hot Black Singles chart. Yeah. Well, you know, there's so much to be said about that in episode 17, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay. Uh, so at one point, because all of America was buying Motown singles to such a large amount, Billboard just stopped printing the R&B singles chart for a couple of months because it was just the same chart. That should have been a sign that maybe the other chart is just a racial construct and really should have one chart and people can like what they like, but maybe it shouldn't be so calcified and and segregated. And they said no, and they brought it back. So it's been, it was yeah. gone for about a week or so, a yeah. couple of weeks. And it's here. And there's something very unique about uh, the American identity, even that goes back to Civil War, in which not everything has to be looked at through a lens of race. Sometimes a beat's a beat. Sometimes yeah. a rhythm is a, is a rhythm. You should realize some people are afraid of music. And I, 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 we think about the 50s, you think about you know, little white kids hearing Little Richard for the first time, then jumping up and down and gyrating. Yeah. And their yeah. parents are like, what is this? <laughs> Why are they doing We didn't teach them to move their pelvis like this. And it must be the Negro music. So I get that. Uh, and if you come from a culture where there's a fear of words, there's a fear of movement, there's a fear of rhythm. I'm not just going to say it's it's just uh, American white people because also the- I thought you were going to say fear of a black planet was the next line. <laughs> well, I, th- that was the final couplet. Yeah, <laughs> I worked at a record store in 1990, and a uh, very polite white woman came in and said, "You know, my 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 nephew is out of juvenile hall, and I want to get him something that he likes." And he oh, he likes hip hop. So, what do you have? And I went, "Well, there's the new Public Enemy record," and she said, "Fear of a." Black Planet. Oh no. Oh yeah. no. I think I got her hammer or something. I tried. Uh, oh gosh. You were the you were the guy who that was that one hammer record that sold of the 80 million, right? <laughs> yes. You could have stopped it. You could have stopped it. I tried so hard. I know. Almost Bismarcky. But uh right. So there is no I mean, obviously beats come from different cultures, but the idea, I mean, even this is kind of funny, uh, the banjo comes from West Africa. It's called the uh, Conting. Right. And it's similar structure, four long strings, a short drone string, a claw hammer strike down. And they've been around in slave culture for in the 1700s, but no one knew until the 1800s. The guy named Joe Sweeney brought it to America through blackface because we can't have nice mm. things. So yeah. one of the most core instruments in country music is actually African in nature. So it's these sort of erasures that make the the, the curation of white music and black music like hysterical. I find it to be really funny. I, I, I don't get depressed anymore. I just kind of laugh going, really? This is how we did it? Yeah, so someone like Prince who could do anything musically I mean, he could do anything. He was, he can take any kind of music. He could do a country song. He could do funk. He could do hip hop. He could do soul. He could do rock and roll. He could kick it with, you know, a a Jimi Hendrix or an Eddie Van Halen style solo. And he can take from anywhere and he's just got the chops to do it. If he's a white musician doing that, 
What's the difference? What, what, what do you call appropriation? Like this is like the popular long word that we use. I don't know if we still use it. It would seem like it was really hot. It was it was hot on the charts, you know, two years ago. I don't know what we're calling right. it now because maybe things have gotten so bad that we don't even need to use big words anymore. The point being, or my question, I'll get to it, is sure. that, you know, what, what would your uh, thought be? You've got someone like Prince who basically dismantles boundaries through talent and this incredible charisma and just it was prince right there's maybe one in a generation at best right what about uh just plain old musicians white black or every every kind of background race creed what have you where do you actually dip into culture in a way that's authentic if you're not from there but you're totally attracted to there and the way that Dylan was about folk music and then country music and then Frank Sinatra, unfortunately. <laughs> Triple disc. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Um, there's something very primal about someone doing what you're doing poorly. Mm. Right. No one thinks Vanilla Ice is a good rapper. <laughs> well, there was that, there was that one guy. But we don't want to, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So right. they're, 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 you know, okay. Yes. Agreed. Now, uh, it's, it's 1990. Rap has been on record for 11 years mm-hmm. maximum. Most of the time, if you heard a rap song on the radio, it was something like a novelty. It's like, hey, the Beach Boys are doing Wipeout with the Fat Boys. You know, it's it's never like right. what made people excited. It wasn't stuff that people would spit on their heads to. It was like, right. oh, that's cute. It's a novelty song. And then he comes and poorly raps over a Queen uh, David Bowie song. It's a good baseline. Mm-hmm. And sells 7 million copies. The 7 million copies part is where the appropriation thing starts to take hold. I because see. you did it poorly. Well, okay, a lot of people do it poorly. You did it poorly, and you had such an easy runway to sell your poor version to the masses, and they bought it with fervor. Now you're rich on something you had nothing to do with. And that's where I think some of the appropriation becomes, again, primal, like, I'm doing it well, and I did not get any of the runway, any of the, because the industry is not set up for that. The industry is set up to sell of no lies. So what, if, so, so what if you do it poorly, but sincerely, right? Like, <laughs> and you don't sell any records. We, that, we're, that's a, a different outcome then yeah you know we, we, we it's like when you watch little kids sing a song you're not the appreciation isn't the fact that they i mean they don't always sing in time or in tune or clap together but it's cute it's fun they're having a good time and and that radiates its own energy right uh but i would swear if if a bunch of out of tune kids sold more copies of let it be than paul mccartney he would say appropriations now taking place Got it. right <laughs> you know um, so that's the other part too, in which there isn't always a space. Here's something you may not know. This week in America, the number two song is a country song by Luke Combs, and right. it's a country cover of Tracy Chapman's Fast Car. Okay. Yeah. Is also the number two country song right. in America. Richie Chapman's Fast Car. As far as I know, she's the only black woman to by herself write a country hit that got that far on the country chart. Mm. 
She said nothing. I'm sure she's sitting around you know, looking at her publishing check and being very right. happy about it. But, you know, one of the issues is sort of like, why are we not hearing more Tracy Chapman on the radio anyway? Why did it take, a, you know, essentially a good old boy to bring her music back to a different generation? Right. You know, because there's a, a market, there's a, a, there is a, there's a industry that is built to support a Luke Combs and put him in front of people whether country or now on the big chart. And fact that she had to write Fast Car for, for her to even get in that lane is just, you know, uh, it's so hard. You know, Such she- an interesting example too. Tracy Chapman. I mean, I remember the first time I heard Tracy Chapman, I stopped the car. I was like, oh my God, this voice. I listened to that album over and over and over again. I know it by heart to this day. Um, and I remember at the time she's from Cleveland, Ohio, where I'm from. Oh, and people were, yeah, and people were, and and she, you know, she got discovered in Boston. She had gone to, I, I don't remember if she had gone to boarding school or she went to Tufts or or some. There was some kind of thing, and people were saying, well, you know, she may be from, you know, the, some of the tougher uh, parts of Cleveland on the East Side. But she went to private school and she went to a fancy college. So she's not real. She's not authentic. <laughs> she's not a real black singer, right? Mm-hmm. She doesn't, that doesn't yep. count. This issue around authenticity, appropriation, who gets a pass and who doesn't? I I don't know um how how one answers that question as a as a as a, a music fan, as a music critic. I think sincerity, I think, goes a long way. I mean, I don't I don't think anybody's mad at Luke Combs for covering a song he loves. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a great song. He does a good version of it. It's great. I don't think anybody was mad at the Beastie Boys because they literally were at the same spots in New York. All the other hip hoppers were. They all knew them. Right. It was like they came out of nowhere to sign to Jeff Jam. So they were accepted. Although weirdly, I think as rap went, forward into the 90s, they became less accepted because they sort of went on their own art rock um, uh, collage of sound kind of way, which is weird because it's almost like, well, now you're too different from hip hop. I'm like, you guys were foundational. (laughs) Yeah. Why is not more hip hop like you guys? Mm. You know, there's this famous quote that I've come across a couple of times in conversations um, where Joni Mitchell says, Bob Dylan's a phony. He's a fake, right? He's just a fake, right? They have this ongoing rivalry with sort of Joni Mitchell, uh, maybe Neil Young a little bit, but definitely Joni and Bob sort of as being like, I don't know, a certain kind of Hall of Fame's Hall of Fame songwriter thing, right? And so as you're talking and thinking about Dylan, who is clearly, you know, a hustler of the hustlers like he 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 did a lot to invent um pop personality um uh the 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 cult of the rock star you know that's when rock starts that's when musicians start getting asked the meaning of life you know not just what you know whether they like coke or pepsi but you know what is God, right? I mean, it it does turn sort of rock and roll in certain ways into being like rock and roll with a capital R um, culturally. And, and and how how does one turn that off and on? I remember uh, at at Switchyard we saw Art Spiegelman talk about yeah Mouse and how after twenty years he's still being invited to public meetings about should his book be banned. 
and he'd spent so much time doing it. It became like his full-time job. And it, it actually for like months, he stopped drawing because he was just so burnt from having to do this other job, which is explain something you wrote decades ago. And I think with, with Bob, it probably snuck up slowly. I'm sure he wanted to be famous and I'm sure, you know, he mm. had to turn on, turn it off. And yeah, they're asking him questions. Fabian was not getting for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you see it. Uh, so cut to late eighties, early nineties. And now that energy of asking a pop star real life questions is now Chuck D a public enemy. They're still asking him that. When something right. happens in, in the black community, they don't ask LL Cool J. They go to, or they don't ask Drake. They go to 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 Chuck D. And Chuck D. admits, of course, he, you know, he took on that mantle of let me explain to you what's going on in the culture because he came from college and guys who go to college, as you know, think they know everything. <laughs> yeah, but they're not going to ask Taylor Swift. No, no, and which is a shame because she's rather sharp and probably has some really good ideas about things. But Chuck has accepted that role of I'm the guy you talk to about deep social issues that go far beyond uh, uh, a backbeat and some cool lyrics. And But he admits it's, it's kind of snuck up on him and he probably shouldn't have always taken the bait after a while because yeah. at the end, you know, you are, once you realize you're part of the Dancing Monkey show, there's kind of an obligation to mm. understand when you should not answer a question. Yeah. You know, I, I appreciate Pearl Jam for a while because they said no interviews. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We just so, take, a, take a break. So, so you've got this, these, uh, all these different interlocking elements of what makes a pop star, what makes meaningful music, what are the, the wells of culture that a pop star draws from and can remain authentic and also sell a lot of records. On the one hand, asking, uh, well, what, what happens when Bob Dylan gets it all wrong? Can can you without without us being apologetic and we'll we're not going to be sued by the Dylan people if we <laughs> do or we don't say it? Uh, where where does Bob Dylan get it all right in your estimation? Whether it's in terms of cultural stance, in terms of uh, musically, simply musically, lyrically, the combination of any of the elements. I would say the fact that I'll go back to the Bob Dylan Center. And I'm walking yeah. through a very condensed timeline of his life. You know, he lived he lived in the public eye since the 60s, and I saw all of it in about an hour and a half. So it's definitely yeah, right. condensed. But you get the feeling that he is not a man of linear time. Linear time is what helps tell the story and did a very good job. But he doesn't look at linear time at all. He looks at right now and maybe throws back to 30 years ago and might look at something 30 years in the future. And he ties it together and goes, this is my statement, whether it's writing or what he's wearing that day. And when he nails that, it, it, it's a perfect landing in which you hear mm. a song like uh, uh, To Make You Feel My Love. That song mm. could have been written tomorrow. What he's saying in it will last forever. How he recorded it sounds timeless. The fact that even right. late in the game of his life, people couldn't wait to cover that song, right? right? Billy Joel's version came out before Bob's did. And it's 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 it has a heavy gravity and it's weightless. And mm -hmm. when he does that, and he does that a lot, uh, it's it's why he's one of the great, it's why there's a center. It's why we'll come to Tulsa and argue about <laughs> um, yeah. 
how come we're the we know the best? Because how often do you will you ever feel that from any art? I mean, essentially, essentially that's what you want from art. You want to see a painting that makes you challenge life. Yeah, it makes you stare at it. The first and affirm it. Sal- and affirm, and affirm it, it. Right. Yeah. I saw Salvador Dali when I was five. Not him. I mean, his art. Yeah. And I was just stunned. I'm just staring like so many questions like what's going on? What's with the big crutch? Why is there a melting clock? Yeah. Someone was paid to do this. You know, what? what's going on? And even growing up in cartoons, I'm like, this is a whole different take on on. So explain to me, father, what is surreality? Because I think I'm into this. <laughs> and it uh, so I like that from my art. And Bob did it a lot. And I, I will never cross Bob out. If I hate the new album, doesn't yeah. matter. I'll yeah. get another one. Yeah. He'll, he'll make another one. Right. Uh, the Christmas album. I love the Christmas album. I didn't expect a late in the season Christmas album from Bob with like a, a, a reggae song on it. It's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I play it every year. <laughs> you know, what What our conversation highlights for me is something that I've been thinking about about Dylan. Since I saw a collection of his paintings at the uh, in Miami, there was this uh, exhibition there. And I don't know painting particularly well, and I'm not particularly visual. So I couldn't comment on whether or not it was quote unquote good paintings. But what I saw was an artist at work. And the the most inspiring thing about that experience of seeing all those paintings in one place was just thinking how much work it took to do it in a relatively short period of time. And here was this guy who was just like, you know, screw it, I'm going to paint, right? Or screw it, I'm going to do a I'm going to do a Sinatra album and then I'm going to do another one and then I'm going to do another one. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, And, and so like with all the layers of the hustle and the rock star BS and all this different things to me, this is what the center meant. Just like you said it, you said it so well, it is about creativity. It's about seeing an artist at work and, you know, in these times or any times just to see someone who's got that determination and vision, just to stick to it and make, and follow their curiosity and make things for themselves and for people. Um, you know, it's just incredibly inspiring. You know, whatever uh, questions we may have asked about war- where Bob Dylan went wrong, first of all, he could care less. But secondly, <laughs> even if we did ask a cutting question that kind of poked a hole in the in the mystique, um, the mystique just kind of fills itself in a sense, because as long as he keeps working, he's kind of earned the right to just keep working, you know, yeah, keep, yeah. Keep, keep doing. I totally agree. I mean, I can't see him at this point going, you know what? I'm just going to be a longshoreman. I, I don't right. see that being fulfilling <laughs> for the world or for him. And yeah, he's been given an opportunity to make anything he wants. And sure. Sometimes it's hard to fire, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, he, he'll still make it and he's trying, he's trying to do something and we may not be ready. I mean, it's totally possible music from him we did not like 20 years ago will all of a sudden trigger something mm. except now, for I, hearts of fire i think you, yeah, you may have yeah. a, <laughs> one one outlier you're not one outlier yes you are uh but he makes so much stuff i was surprised to see uh in a positive sense how much metal work he does and what, there was some yeah. there and we saw together uh, a, a wonderful a panel showing some other ones he did, I think in, in yes. France and, you know, very large sculpture. And that's exciting. You know, he does, he does other things that are really fun to look at and experience. And, you know, that way you could walk through. 
And you do a lot of other things besides talk about Bob Dylan as we wrap up here. Oh we'll put my this gosh. in the notes, but is there anything in particular you're working on that you're excited about that we can share with people? What's happening? Well, um, I'm also the manager of a 70s uh, new wave punk band called The Furies, and they've kind of gotten back together and right I'm hoping to put out the Greatest Hits collection, which is hey. Spotify, I believe, by the end of July. So, so we're going to look for that. Good. For Perfect. that, I'm also wearing uh, my Secret MC Society t-shirt because I'm also a uh, manager of that queer country band and so they're doing a tour in the states in the fall so look out for that that That's should be good secret mg society. society yes which we there you go as a good manager knows you must spell certain elements of a band's name in order for people to get it right imagine Excellent. the manager of Ongway j malmstein he did nothing but spell out his name for decades. I know. that's right don't forget the, j. From the greats <laughs> so you and and what about what about uh are you are you writing are you teaching what have you got anything that people can check out or should be checking out in the, in the uh, months there ahead? is there is uh the, the remainder of season two of my podcast which is called all your favorite music is probably where we do a deep dive onto themes with another guest and it's always fun it's always like oh i didn't know that that's great yeah uh, also i have a video channel on youtube and the show is called still got it where i do new reviews of new music from vintage artists beautiful so so yeah it's all gonna be so much there's so much to do so much to listen to so we're gonna put all that in the notes and uh i want to say uh thank you to you mark for uh your musical wisdom your um vast vast encyclopedic knowledge of music but not just that just to to the way you frame things and um are able to to provide like these such interesting points of view um it's just a real pleasure i'm glad that we can share some of that with people I look forward to to seeing and hearing from you and uh, talking with you again. This is where Mark Montgomery French got everything all right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. Had a joy to be here and good to talk to you again, sir. Thank you very much. Right on. Thank you. This has been episode 13 of season three of Bob Dylan about man and God and law. Bob Dylan Gets It All Wrong, Part 2. Thank you, Mark Montgomery French, for enlightening us in so many ways, bridging some tough topics with grace, making us love the music, and talking about the music even more. Be sure to find all of Mark's work at mmfrench.com. We are proud to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of your podcasts for music lovers at pantheonpodcast.com Next time, next time it is, I promise, the last and final episode of this podcast. Yes, it's true, we may be back to drop an episode by you, for you, with you, here or there in the future, but the series will be done. And long live the series! I'm working on a series of special retreats to do Dylan at beautiful places in the world in the year ahead. Subscribe for our mailing list at mangodlaw.com to find out more about that project and other related work. I'm also working on a new book, a project that takes the lessons learned here further out into the universe of music, religion, and making meaning in a world gone wrong because I still believe that music will prevail 
getting there, well, your Bob and I differ. I believe that there are altars on that lawn in Lonesome Road. More about that, a deep dive back into highlights, insights, and reflections on the past three years spent with Bob Dylan in the next episode, which will drop before the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, in September. In the meantime, I am, as always, Dr. Stephen Daniel Arnold. Thanks for coming. See you soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.